0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Before Amsterdam, another North Sea city was the hub of the known world, Antwerp. Writes today's guest, rapidly became a world city, a centre of stories published across Europe, a sensation like 19th century Paris or 20th century New York, one of the first cities where anything could happen, or at least be believed. Other cities showed the power of kings or dukes or empires, but Antwerp showed only itself, a place of trade where people wanted, needed to be, or couldn't afford not to be. It was famous on its own terms. New trade routes into the city brought pepper and diamonds from India, silver from America and gold from Africa, The tracked by cart and river to the Ottoman Empire in the east. Antwerp made possible escape routes to Istanbul for Jews facing the Inquisition in Portugal, including for the woman running the largest merchant banking house in Europe. And in just a few generations, the city had featured in Thomas More's Utopia, taught Erasmus about money, protected William Tyndale and smuggled out copies of his Bible in English, as well as burning them. The story of the glory days of the city of Antwerp is our focus today. My guest is Michael Pye, the author of Antwerp, The Glory Years, for which he did a phenomenal amount of research reconstructing the city from archives in Venice through to London, Michael Pye's 12 previous books have been translated into 15 languages, three have been New York Times' Notable Books of the Year, two were British bestsellers, and one became a Hollywood movie. Michael won various prizes in modern history at Oxford and went on to become a journalist, broadcaster, and columnist in London and New York. He joins me from Amsterdam to talk about another great Dutch city, Antwerp. Michael, it's very lovely to talk to you. I enjoyed your book immensely. You write beautifully and you have such a eclectic, wonderful mind in gathering things together and telling stories. And every sentence is a joy. It was a real triumph. Congratulations on it.
2: Oh, well, you're very kind. Please don't stop now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I should just carry on throughout the podcast. But it's also absolutely packed full of interesting ideas. And so, of course, what I want to do is delve deep into those with you. And the first question to ask is, you make the case that Antwerp, in these glory days, the early 16th century, is not a capital city. It's not a city-state like Venice. It doesn't have a royal court. It doesn't have a national government. It doesn't have an army or a navy or an empire or a bishop to justify its standing. And yet it becomes one of the richest and most important Cities in the world. So give us a bit of a starter for ten here. How did it do that?
2: It did it basically by being the hub of the world that Europe knew at a time when Europe was beginning to know more and more of the world. And remember this is when the Transoceanic routes are beginning to open up, when you actually shipped something from Asia around Africa into Europe. And that changes a lot of the dynamic of which cities matter. The ones on the Mediterranean matter less because it's really inconvenient to get past the pirates at the mouth of the Mediterranean and get into Venice with a heavy load of something valuable, as it might be gold. And it's much easier to ship to a North Sea port. So the logic of the transoceanic trade routes makes Antwerp a possible contender for real power and real riches. And then what happens is that Antwerp really rather cleverly proceeds to make sure that it does get the riches. Power, I'm not sure Antwerp ever really cared about. It cared about enough power to make its own destiny, to make its own path, but it didn't really want to dominate anybody else. That wasn't the point. Everybody else had to come to Antwerp to do business. Everything crossed over there. This is where the roots from Germany, the minings of Germany, met the wool from England, but also the silver from America, the gold from Africa, the spices coming from India, all of these extraordinary things were going through the docks at Antwerp. Paracelsus, the so-called alchemist, but rather I would say doctor, said that he had learnt more on the docks at Antwerp than he'd learnt in any school, just by looking at what was there, what was new, what was exciting.
1: So in other words, we could say, I suppose, that the rise of Antwerp signals the beginnings of, for want of a better word, globalisation?
2: I do hate that word, basically, because I think it underestimates how much people were in motion before we start talking about trade routes and all the rest of it. And if you think about it, the trade routes, which were already in existence, go across the Sahara and the Sahel with paper on the back of your camel, or gold, or whatever you wanted to carry. If you were in South America, You could be crisscrossing the Amazon Basin, we know, because a few things like maize, for example, made their way from Mexico across the Amazon right down to the River Plate. Now, this world was always in motion. And that's why I would say, no, it's not the beginning of globalisation. It's the beginning of Europeans dealing with globalisation, that I would take, and dealing with many other changes that came with it.
1: And are the specific goods that are absolutely crucial to Antwerp's success.
2: Antwerp loved very expensive goods that didn't weigh very much. It was the essence of Antwerp's policies. (laughs) And the best of all those, of course, was spice. Spice coming from India. I mean, not just pepper, but also ginger and all the other things. And all of that could be shipped in round Africa rather conveniently, avoiding Venice and all the problems of going through the Red Sea. And could then be distributed easily from Antwerp because you could send it up the Rhine. From the Rhine, you could actually, if you've got a light enough cargo, cross the Alps into Italy more easily from Antwerp than you could from Venice. It's an absurd situation, but true.
1: And trade, as you suggest, meant not just exchange of goods, but of knowledge and ideas. How did that manifest itself in the city?
2: I'll give you one example. People were beginning to become very worried about new forms of syphilis. And if you had bad luck and went into the wrong bed at the wrong time, you needed to do something about it. And at the same time, as this was coming apparently from the west, from the east, there was coming a route called Smilax, which is a knobbly, shiny thing, which seemed to be according to doctors in Asia, some sort of cure for syphilis. This is fine, and Smilax was duly imported into Antwerp. But wait a minute. You then have to know what to do about it. You have to know how to take it, what else you have to do, how long it takes to get a cure, when are you safe, when are you not. And all of that, you find as you go through the books and the papers and the letters that were written about this, you find that people needed a doctor from Antwerp in order to use the goods that were coming in through Antwerp. And while that's an extreme case, it's also true that because so much was being traded in Antwerp, including money, including guns, including gunpowder, you could always find out what was going to happen next by watching the docks and the streets of Antwerp closely enough. So if you knew what kind of money a king wanted, what kind of coins had a good chance of working out where he wanted to pay troops which probably meant where he was going to go to war next if you knew that he was ordering armor and gunpowder in quantity you knew the war was probably going to be imminent so the whole business of trade becomes something that you watch in the way that any sort of proto-James Bond would want to watch it and so Antwerp becomes a city of spies as well because it's a city of trade.
1: Yes, you have a characteristically lovely line where you say people could make a living or a killing in Antwerp by knowing what was happening or likely to happen somewhere else. So I suppose it's that sense of selling that information once you've discovered it is crucial here.
2: Absolutely. And people were watching that information all the time. There's a wonderful, possibly the villain of the book, because he's the man who, having begun as a very minor trader from Italy, dominated the markets in Antwerp for many years, a man called Gaspar Ducci, or as I prefer to call him Jasper Douch, which is what the English always call him. Ducci was absolutely the king of the markets. He watched everything, but he also kept a platoon of 20 Italians who went about the streets And part of their job was to threaten other people. Ducci was very much into threatening other people one way or another, attempted to murder various of them. But his real interest too, who's going where to do a deal? Who's trying to get money from somebody else and therefore they're meeting at that house or that house? And if you watched the streets and you watched the city, you can see how things are going to go, what deals are going down, what wars are being planned.
1: I suppose in another way, it's a hub of knowledge and information because of the printing presses in Antwerp. I was astonished to read that they were printing almost entirely in English. Have I remembered that correctly?
2: It's the other way around, actually. Most of the English books that really mattered were being printed in Antwerp. The volume of the printing trade in Antwerp was extraordinary. And one of the reasons was, look, let's go to the basics of Antwerp. Antwerp was, for a start, not in Flanders, as everybody always says, but in Brabant. In other words, it's in another province of the Spanish Netherlands where different rules applied. And this had all sorts of implications from the beginning. I won't bore you with the implications about the wall trade, but we can talk about what it also meant in terms of being able to be relatively independent of central control. Because remember, the Spanish Netherlands were being run from Madrid at the time, with Madrid's attitudes and Madrid's faith and Madrid's authoritarianism as well. Now, Antwerp could slide away from all of that. Antwerp used the fact that it was on the margins, which meant that Antwerp could print all sorts of things that shouldn't have been printed there and couldn't really legally have been printed there. And Antwerp also slided through all sorts of things. For example, when William Tyndale wanted to print his Bible translated into English, he tried various other places. He tried Femmes, he tried Cologne, and he came back to Antwerp. And there he was able to print and send the sheets of those books disguised across to England quite easily because there was so much going back and forth through the docks. But he also, a year later, saw fires being made on the streets of Antwerp to burn the entire print run of the books that Antwerp had let him print a year before. So this was difficult. Things were possible in Antwerp when they were not possible anywhere else. But things could suddenly turn round. And the wonderful thing about Antwerp and publishers is that every time Madrid thought it would be a really good idea perhaps to execute a few publishers because, afterward they're troublesome people, they said, well, we could banish them. And Madrid was rather uncertain about that, but Antwerp did banish them. Banishment at the time meant, roughly speaking, that you weren't supposed to come within about a mile of the city walls, or at least to be caught coming within a mile of the city walls. So you've got minor punishments for things that Madrid thought ought to be punished rigorously. So guess what? In the early years of the Reformation, this means that it's a really good place to publish difficult texts about Christianity, about religion. So you can occasionally get away with printing a Calvinist text, a Bible in English, all of these things that were against the law elsewhere. It's because Antwerp was always being, how shall we put it, flexible about things.
1: Yes, one theme, I suppose, is that you mentioned the reiteration of rules and generally things get repeated, you must do this, when people are not doing them. And so there's a sense in which whenever authority looks away, the magistrates or the merchants of Antwerp just kind of get on with it. Is that a fair characterization?
2: Yes, it shows in absolutely everything from the way buildings were put up. I mean, this is a medieval city, after all. It's a city with a great deal in wood with houses crammed together so if any fire starts the consequences are absolutely terrible and did the city have rules about not building in wood yes did the city have rules about not repairing structures in wood and building something better yes when did they last have those rules and try to enforce them at the end of the 19th century in 400 years they hadn't managed to actually get anybody to obey
1: and you Also, on the sort of idea of rules, you talk about curfews and indeed about bells, actually, and the way that these were, I suppose, trying to govern Antwerp. Can you give us a sense of that?
2: It was a city of bells, to the most extraordinary extent. I mean, there was a bell that started the day in the morning. There was a bell which said, the gates are shutting, come in, be careful, shut down. The curfew bells. And in between, there were bells all the time. The bells announced absolutely everything. There was a great bell, the Carolus, in what was then the parish church, later became the cathedral. And Carolus would sound out for any important piece of news. It might be the visit of an emperor, but it might also be something that had happened in a war. This was, if you heard Carolus, you knew that something was about to change. If you were listening on the streets, you would hear bells for all manner of things, not just church services, but announcing everything through the day. And the rhythm of the day started from that bell in the morning, that bell in the evening. And it didn't matter how grand your trade was. It didn't matter if you were shaping gold or silver all day, or if you were butchering the odd pig. It could be either end of the scale, as it were, in terms of delicacy. But you had to follow those bells. That was when the day started. And that was the discipline most noticeable in the bourse, in the exchange, in the absolute heart of the city, where a bell announced the time when merchants had better turn up at the exchange. Because to be perfectly frank, if you weren't in the exchange on time, in the right place, people were going to say, yes, what's wrong with his business today? And if you manage that too often, people would assume you were bankrupt and stop doing business with you. And those two bells for the two main sessions of the bourse morning and evening, again, dominated the rhythm even of the financial world in the town. So bells were absolutely all important.
1: I love the sense that if we could hear that soundscape of bells, we would be transported back. We would have some understanding of what people experienced in the past. But I also want to pick up on your mention of the burst because as well as trade and passing trade and passing ideas, this idea that money itself had a market in Antwerp is fascinating. I mean, we're so familiar with it. It's part of our everyday life now, but My financial history isn't so good that I know if this is true or not, but it seems to be a very early example of financialisation.
2: On this scale, it's probably the earliest. Just because remember what money supply meant in the 16th century. It meant, did you have the coins? One of the things that could interrupt money supply was not a sort of great decision by a government about interest rates. It was whether or not there was a war going on which would physically stop coins being shipped from one place to another. That's money as a commodity. What Antwerp changed was the system that actually made it possible to do deals, the system that Antwerp couldn't have existed without was a system of paper, of letters of credit, because you used those when there was no currency that everybody agreed on, when the value, even the value of a coin could be in question, because who knows if it's been clipped at the edges to take some of the good metal off, and who knows if it's the right kind of coin anyway, with the right monarch's face on it. But all of a sudden you've got an enormously powerful hub of trade, working on paper. And not only working on paper, by 1547, the emperor in Madrid had made it a rule that the final place where letters of credit were tested, in other words, where you could theoretically get cash or goods or whatever for them, was the bill of So it becomes the centre and the focus of that paper trade. And I think probably that's the thing that Antwerp changed more than anything else. You had so many people going there as traders in a port which allowed you to, when you unloaded from your ships, to actually take anything out of a crate. You didn't have to pretend you were bringing supplies for Antwerp. No, you were shipping goods through Antwerp. And you were doing the paperwork that went with shipping goods through Antwerp. And all of that means that there's a level of abstraction, which is quite extraordinary. And what you get is bright and not terribly scrupulous young blokes from northern Italy, usually, who were sent up there by great trading houses and proceeded to see exactly what could be done with paper, swapping obligations, swapping assets and so on. And when you've got that going, you've got something. I don't have a good word for it. The only word I have is financialisation, which is hideous and probably not all that accurate, but never mind. It's the one word I've got. It's financialisation. It's when money goes from being a commodity to being a process.
1: I'm very comforted by the fact that some of the great minds at the time, like Erasmus, couldn't understand what was going on.
2: Oh, there's a wonderful letter from his banker to Erasmus saying rather tartly, I did hope that you would have understood this by now. And he goes on again to explain that, well, money can have different values in different places and sometimes it changes value when it's going from one place to another. All of the stuff which we now think of as totally elementary and we think about when we're booking our holidays for the summer, all of this was so esoteric to Erasmus that he simply could not cope with it. He also thought he was being robbed, missing the point that actually probably he was being robbed, but that was a secondary issue to the money stage.
1: Talking of Erasmus and of the great and the good, Antwerp was a place that attracted these sort of people. I mean, mentioned Tinder already, Thomas More, Albert Durer, John Dee. Why were they coming to
2: Antwerp? Because they could find information there. They could find information in the form of the physical goods on the docks or the books that were being published or the exchange of ideas that was going through. When you have a publishing house like Christoph Plantin's house, you've got an exchange of ideas on an extraordinary scale. Every kind of idea going through from which leaves you should take to cure your sore throat to how to deal with archangels to all of these things and the history of Rome and the history of Greece and everything else. And in one memorable occasion when Plantain was doing a rather sort of specious bit of publishing, an eyewitness account of the court of Ivan the Terrible, which he picked up from a publisher in Vilnius, believe it or not. There was an extraordinary exchange of ideas. And it was also true that it was the place you expected to go to find things out. One of the most interesting texts, to my mind, in the early part of the 16th century, obviously, is Thomas More's Utopia. And More had every reason to like Antwerp. He had good friends there, and he'd actually represented Antwerp in some legal actions in London. But the interesting thing is that when he goes to Antwerp, he's not at all surprised that it's there that he finds out about a distant, mythical, moralistic island somewhere called Utopia. That's where you go to find this sort of thing out. And it's perfectly natural to be on the main square by the main parish church and to get this story from somebody who looks like a sort of weather-beaten seaman and is wearing fairly rough clothes. Well, of course, that's the sort of person who knows things in Antwerp. It's not a listener of the grandees, it's the merchants, it's the seamen. It's the people who are going through this incredible wave of information, knowledge, new things that was coming in as along with the goods.
1: Your book also tells us stories about some people of whom we may not have heard. Tell us about the banker Simone Turki. <laughs>
2: Yes, one of the problems in writing a book about Antwerp is that you have to edit it severely because you get too many killer bankers. There were rather a lot of them. Simon Turkey was certainly the most famous killer banker. He's in a short story written by the man who also wrote the short story of Romeo and Juliet and the Duchess of Malfi, so we owe him a lot. He's in Cardano, the mathematician's book of strange things. Why? Ah, because Turki committed a murder with a strange device. And strange devices were, as you know, extremely fashionable in the 16th century. This one was a real horror. It was a chair where, if you sat down in it, and you weren't the person who was supposed to sit there, suddenly iron bars would come out across your thighs and you were trapped. You could not move, you could not get away. And Tiorki used that to murder somebody he was not on very good terms with, let's say. And why not? Well, because Turki had no great talent for finance, but talented enough in some ways to keep the attention of a very important grandee lady called Maria van der Werwe. And given that he was looking after her money, when the money didn't seem to be growing and the money actually seemed to be diminishing a bit, Maria van der Werwe very sensibly asked another Italian banker what was going on. And unfortunately, the other Italian banker told the truth. This was a terrible mistake. As a result, having been invited by Turki to go down to Turki's little house just outside the walls, there to see a real new present. Unbelievably very beautiful cauliflowers were involved, but actually people did garden. They gardened in a rather sort of technical and scientific way, and possibly the cauliflowers were about that. Anyway, he went. He sat down in the chair, and he was trapped, and he was knifed. And there followed a long comedy of trying to get rid of the body, as it might be down a well, as it might be burying it here and there, with the help of servants, some of whom turned out to be trustworthy and some of whom not at all. But here was a banker, somebody who'd come up as a representative of a leading Italian banking house from Lucca, who had failed at banking. And all of a sudden, his one way of surviving in a town where you had to be seen to be doing business, the business of Maria van der Berwe, was no longer his. And he would kill in order to save his position. Didn't, of course. In the end, he had to be executed. And it was one of those really barbaric 16th century executions where he was carried into the main square on the chair in which he'd committed murder with the bars in place and placed just close enough to a fire to be in pain with a bag of gunpowder around his neck. And he was left close enough to the fire to be tortured for quite a time. And we're talking more than an hour until finally somebody thought it was about time to light the gunpowder and actually allow him to die. It was a terrible ending, but it was a terrible ending for a bizarre story. First of all, we almost never really have documented stories of people who failed at what they were doing. Those are the papers that tend to go away and disappear. But in Turki's case, we do know how he failed and where he failed, because it all came out in the course of what people knew about the murder he committed. So it's extraordinary how even killer bankers actually can throw a lot of light on how things actually worked.
1: Yes, I think those moments of failure, when you can get them in the sources, do tend to shed so much light. And actually, perhaps there is a question to ask you about the challenge of sources, because it is clear that for the records of Antwerp, little remains of the glorious city you're describing, much is missing. How did you go about piecing together this story?
2: The problem with Antwerp is that in 1576, Spanish troops mutinied and set fire to everything they could set fire to. This unfortunately included the town hall and the records that were stored there. So we don't have those sort of convenient series of records that make it possible to make statements easily. We don't even have enough court records to do that sort of thing. Though there's been a lot of brilliant work at the University of Antwerp and the city history departments, who on making the best job possible of what is left. But if you want, as I wanted to, to give people a sense of what this smelt like, what it looked like, what it sounded like, where would you feel safe, where would you not feel safe, that sort of issue, then you have to go somewhere else. Well, this is the advantage of writing a book about the hub of the world, because the world wanted to explain Antwerp. And very often it would be people like the ambassadors from Venice, who wanted to explain Antwerp to the people back home and would go into real detail. And it's to the Venetian ambassadors that we owe the wonderful observation that "Eh, it's amazing that business gets done in Antwerp because all the men are so drunk all the time, which means that most of the business is left to the women. Long pause. Who are also drunk half the time. (laughs) Guicciardini was rather beastly about that. But people were watching. And if you look around, you find the most extraordinary people watching. It's not just the ambassadors and the official reports back home. It's the spies, of course, and the people who were running spies. Lots in the English records about that and what was being discovered and what was known and how you actually did the trade craft of spying in Antwerp. Which is one of the fascinating things. The London records have lots of stuff about that. Who do you talk to? Who do you threaten? Where do you threaten them? Is it better to threaten them on the roads or in town? And who is the one girl at the one inn by the fish market who always knows where absolutely everybody has been? And all of this is in the records. Not of the records of Antwerp, but the records of the people watching Antwerp. And the range is astonishing. I mean, you can go from clerics in Zurich, serious Protestant gentlemen, through to deeply unserious people worrying about the activities available in Antwerp if you happen to want a good night out. I mean, all of these things are being written about. And also Antwerp comes up in semi-fiction. The obvious one is Bandello, who wrote about Simon Turki and who wrote Romeo and Juliet as well. But there are others too. I mean, one of the first novelists in German, Georg Wickram, who was possibly the most boring man who ever lived, who was born in Colmar and once went 10 kilometres away from Colmar in order to become town clerk of a town even smaller than Colmar. This is not a man you would expect to have wide knowledge of the world. As far as we know, he never travelled. And yet Wickram writes about Antwerp. And you start wondering, how on earth did he know about this? Is he making it out because Antwerp is so famous... He thinks it's all right to make up stories about it, same way that people made up stories, I don't know, about New York last century or Paris a century before that. No, it's not, actually. He did know, and we know how he knew. When Jews, who were in fact, of course, called the conversos or the new Christians, had to leave Antwerp going elsewhere, they sometimes got intercepted by the emperor's forces who thought they might be carrying, or well, I don't know, money, perhaps, which the emperor could do with And one group just outside Colmar was arrested and they were brought in for interrogation. And we know they were interrogated with the interpreter being one of Georg Wickram, the novelist's greatest friends, a goldsmith. And we know, therefore, that Wickram must have had access to what these people remembered about Antwerp. And they were explaining everything. They were explaining how to do business on the street, what you could make money out of, what you couldn't make money out of. And you also began to realise that if they knew all this about Antwerp, surely they knew the rest of the world, but probably not, because at least one of them thought that Italy was a very big city and not actually a country. If you've got all of that material, you almost report at second hand, but reporting is always at second hand, what is going on in Antwerp. And what Wickram gives us, this boring old man from Colmar, is a portrait of life on the streets of the city how you dealt with your neighbours, how you dealt with your bad neighbours, the ones who were always interfering with your maid cleaning up and who were throwing garbage over your shop. How do you celebrate? What are the places to be? What's it like to be a young man arriving in Antwerp? and see all these wonderful buildings and to think about where you should eat and where you should drink. All of this stuff is being communicated by refugees from Antwerp, as it happens in this case but it was spreading across the whole of Europe. Europe watched Antwerp.
1: You also do some very clever things with, for example, doodles in the margins by town clerks. What can you possibly derive from doodles?
2: Well, you get an idea of what they're really worrying about for a start. But mind you, the Latin quotations, I'll agree, are probably better direct evidence of that than anything else. But also, I mean, if certain images keep coming back... If people are worrying about things, they're worrying about losing money and position and yourself, then people are worrying about the markets that made that possible. If people are worrying about walls, and there's some issue about the defences of the city, all of these I think you can pull out from those doodles just enough to have more information about what Antwerp was and what it felt like to be there and in charge of it than you could ever get from the papers that survive.
1: It's interesting. That reminds me of Lyndall Roper suggesting that we should attend to people's dreams in the past again because they give us an insight into people's anxieties.
3: Have you heard? History is going to Antarctica and we're taking you with us. I'm Dan Snow and i am be part of an incredible expedition to try and locate the missing Endurance shipwreck Ernest Shackleton's vessel that was crushed by the ice and sent to the depths during his 1914 attempt to cross the vast continent from side to side Whether you're a Shackleton expert or this story is completely new to you we've got something special for you It starts on the 7th of February, when we'll be dropping a captivating mini-series that tells the tale of just how Shackleton and his crew managed to survive months stranded in the coldest place on Earth with no shelter, no ship and no contact with the outside world. How they made an escape that defies the very limits of human endurance through the planet's roughest oceans in a wooden rowing boat, walking across mountains and glaciers, all with not enough food or water. So, make sure you subscribe to Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you listen to your podcast to get the full story. Endurance 22, coming February 7th.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore.
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. One of the things that was said by foreigners about Antwerp was that it was this slightly shocking place of equality for the sexes. How did that manifest itself? And indeed, was it true? <laughs>
2: It was completely true. I mean, you imagine, you come from some Italian city-state where a woman has to worry about her dowry and she has to worry about getting married as early as possible so the dowry will be as low as possible so her family won't suffer too much. Early marriage? No. Not in Flanders and Brabant, not in the Netherlands. Marriage could be delayed until you were 20, 25. And if that's true, that means that there is, as it were, a gap in women's lives given that people didn't go to school for a very long time, if they did go to school, there's a time when women could find things to do for themselves. And the law was fairly generous about that. This was not exactly a feminist paradise, but it did allow even married women to be business people in their own right and to get on with borrowing money and buying and selling things in their own right. And they did have this extraordinary directness and this ability to be themselves. There was no sense that they were subordinate. In fact, there is one figure. There's a picture which haunts me because one wonders how many other women could have been exactly like her. It's one of the first known self-portraits of an artist working, Katharine von Hammerson. And this is an extraordinary story because she shouldn't be painting. The Guild rules in Antwerp, like anywhere else, were that only men could be taken into the Guild of St Luke. But there she is. She's painting, and she's painting the act of her painting. And she, in fact, was so successful that she was taken up to Mechelen by the court and proceeded to do a whole succession of portraits of women we might not even know about without the portraits that she made. And it's in her defiance, and but it's also in the fact that this is not a grand statement of defiance expecting to become a martyr. This is just somebody saying, right, this is me. This is what I do. Cope with it. And I love that in The Women of Antwerp of the time.
1: Yes, I mean, I was amazed to read about a female poet publishing under her own name, or women as printers, lenders, the spice trade, marine insurance, you say, at one point, even female surgeons. So many of these things are not stories I'm finding elsewhere.
2: Well, I think you should be fair to a lot of rather very good women historians in Belgium and in the Netherlands who have been chasing these stories. But also, they just keep coming up. You can't get away from them remember this is the city where the great Donna Gracia operated and there is a story of a woman I mean admittedly her powers had not all that much to do with Antwerp itself but she functioned well in Antwerp who is she well she was the woman and I can't overstress that the woman in charge of the largest merchant banking operation in Europe not only that but she came to be in control of it because her husband left half the business to her and then when his brother died he left half the business to her. So, in other words, men had decided that this was the right person to run this gigantic operation. And he was lending money to kings, which meant Donna Gracia had to have the chutzpah to get down to Lyon at one point and actually done the King of France like a bailiff in order to get a loan back, which she really needed. Absolutely extraordinary. And her ability to operate, nobody questioned. She was taken extremely seriously. Well, I mean, she was hassled by the Habsburg court because they wanted to marry off her daughter so that her daughter's money and the family fortunes wouldn't actually ever leave Habsburg territory. There were all sorts of things that had very much to do with her position as a woman. But the one thing that didn't have much to do with her position as a woman was running this gigantic empire.
1: And of course, you must also tell us about the other network that she ran in this period.
2: Well, let's do a backtrack. Remember, this is the time when the Inquisition was just coming into Portugal. Spain, 1492, Jews have to cross the border immediately into Portugal. They're welcome at first, but then, rather foolishly, the King of Portugal decides to marry the daughter of the Queen of Spain, who is violently anti-Semitic, and therefore there has to be oppression on Jews. Terrible things happen. Numbers of Jewish children were sent to islands off Cabo Verde, where you will still find gravestones in Hebrew from the period, and left there either to become Christian because they weren't tempted by Judaism or to die. But anyway, that possibility of terror and inquisition was always imminent. There were major riots in Lisbon where Jews were murdered. This is a period when uncertainty for Jews in Portugal was great. And yet, ironically, Dona Gracia's husband was one of the richest merchants in Lisbon a man who had deposited more silver with the royal mint than any other merchant. So you've got a contrast of extreme power and extreme vulnerability. And of course it couldn't go on. And at the point where the Inquisition formally began to come into Portugal, which is 1536, something had to be done. People had to be got out. But they couldn't be got out legally because the law changed and no apparently converted Jew was permitted to leave And curiously enough, as a rider, given that they weren't allowed to leave, they weren't allowed to take anything with them. So how do you get people out? can't think of anything except for Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railway getting slaves out of the south in the States. You had to have a way to get people safely out of Portugal where anything could happen next and across to where they might be safe. And the paradox is the place where they might be safe, obviously enough, as we think of the world now, was in Islamic Istanbul, because at least you were away from all the Christian prejudices and all the Christian attitudes to Jews who had failed to convert properly. So Donna Gracia helped run it. I mean, part of it is obvious, she managed the letters of credit that allowed people to move money across it, but some of it's much less obvious, because it was a matter of getting a ship out of Lisbon, or wherever you were starting from in Portugal, getting safely to somewhere where you could wait until you discovered what the emperor's mood was, if it was bad it was a bad time to go to Antwerp and if it was good it was a good time and getting out of Lisbon was not easy. I mean there are stories of people who managed it on ships that got to the mouth of the river Tagus at Lisbon so it's the mouth of the harbour and were there shot at and had to turn back. So if you did get out on the other hand you had to be taught how you could go from Antwerp Wherever you wanted to be, sometimes it was Italian states like Ferrara, which were fairly tolerant and which were quite a good place to be for a while, or if you wanted to go on to Salonika or to Istanbul. But how did you do it? It took extraordinary planning, and we happened to have a couple of memos telling people exactly how to behave and what to do and where their contacts are, how to recognize their contacts. So we know that you left in a coach from Antwerp early in the morning so as not to draw attention. You got to Cologne and then from Cologne you went up the Rhine on a boat because that meant you didn't have to get off the boat to sleep anywhere at night so there wasn't somebody obviously travelling. And you got to Switzerland eventually through Basel, you got to Lucerne and after Lucerne you crossed the lake and you rode or walked across the Alps. And there's lots of sort of advice on how you should do this. If you want to travel with your wife, you're told, then for goodness sake, make sure you get horses from the same farm because horses like travelling in a family too. And don't wear too fine a hat. Because if you wear too fine a hat, people will think you've got money and the cost of absolutely everything, like getting through a frontier, is going to go up all the way. It's all that level of detail. And we owe these documents, I should say, to an extraordinary man called Leone Leone, who discovered them and published them and who simply trawled through the archives of Europe looking for material which, which would throw light on Jewish populations in Antwerp and in London. And I have to say I'm extremely grateful to him because he gave us the melodrama and the feel of this extraordinary underground railway.
1: And I suppose those conversos, the Jewish converts, or maybe not converts, opposing as converts who appeared in Antwerp, were just a small number of the many thousands of newcomers who were arriving between the 1520s and 1540s. Apart from the Jewish population, can you give us some sense of the diversity of Antwerp
2: society? Well, in the modern sense of diversity, the most striking thing is the number of people who said there were more black faces in Antwerp than in any other city in Europe, except perhaps Lisbon. And that's very surprising, because in Lisbon, remember, all the ferries were operated by Africans, curiously enough. I don't understand why, but they were. And so black faces and the black population were extremely visible. It wasn't just a matter of who passed you on the street. It was people you needed all the time. There are minimal records of who actually lived and thrived there. Or you do occasionally find somebody in the Dyers Guild who had been working in Antwerp for 20, 30 years and was of African or Moorish extraction. But diversity of nationalities, oh yes... I mean, remember that the Germans were there because this was the route for the mines of South Germany. The Hanseatic League were there, which gives you the whole of the Baltic and the ports down the North Sea. Merchants from Italy, merchants from Portugal, merchants to an extent from France, but nevertheless many exiles from France. Plantin, after all, the great Antwerp printer, was a French who always kept a shop in Paris just in case. It's an absolute mix of languages, particularly on the street. People said that you would hear five or six languages on the street, but more remarkable, they said that it was usual for women in Antwerp to speak five or six languages quite fluently. So they must have needed five or six languages, because the same person who says that says these were women who had never left the city, let alone gone to another country which spoke another language. The ordinary fact of picking up languages in Antwerp was that you picked up a half dozen. And I suppose
1: one of the sources of information about black faces in Antwerp at the time is the artwork of the period. We've mentioned Dürer and Jan Mostart as another example, which leads me to ask you another question about art in Antwerp, because it seems that although of course there had been patrons of artists much before, there's a sense in which art is changing into becoming a commodity in Antwerp in this time. How did this happen?
2: It happened partly because people wanted religious images in their houses, just as simple as that. They wanted something that might otherwise have gone into a grand church. They wanted a smaller version of it they could hang in an alcove. But it happened also because it was possible. And it's part of the same process of thinking again about what things are, about what money really is and how it can be expressed and how it can be exchanged. Same thing with images in art. And what you get is this extraordinary assembly line process in Antwerp. I'm not suggesting that Bruegels were done on an assembly line, although Bruegel's sons, of course, were on assembly lines later, but never mind. You get people who set themselves up to produce a line of images. There's one particularly horrific one, which is two immensely fat cherubim kissing each other. It really is possibly the vilest thing I've ever seen, and unfortunately you can see it in an awful lot of places because it is supposed to be Christ and St John acknowledging each other. But the line was available... And you could actually order it. You could order it horizontal or vertical, depending on the space you had on the wall. You could order it at different sizes. And it was understood that depending on whether you wanted it horizontal or vertical, the brushwork would be different. So if you really wanted the actual artist to have touched, or indeed looked at, the end result, you pretty much had to buy the more expensive version. This is an assembly line. This is a commodity. One of the extraordinary things is that people always talk about the art dealers of Amsterdam. In that golden age in the 17th century as the first art dealers no 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 we have at least one woman in antwerp who was selling ready-made work made by her husband admittedly on the market in general not at the specialist markets but in her own right as it were from her own stall from her own stand in the 1500s that's a hundred years before the art dealers of amsterdam and because you had this extraordinary sense everything could be a transaction everything could be a deal And that was in the culture of the place. The same thing goes for art, as it did later for music as well.
1: And I imagine she was selling it partly because he was getting on with the painting, but also because she was less drunk than he was.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, who knows? Being drunk may have been a social advantage. I mean, that certainly didn't put a lot of bankers off their stride, but that's...
1: (laughs) So given that Antwerp seems to have been mostly a place of freedoms. What were the relations between the magistrates of Antwerp and Charles V? You describe it as a strenuous relationship in another lovely phrase. (laughs) Can you explain what you mean by that?
2: Well, it was strenuous, yes. They were basically trying to keep Charles out of their business. Charles needed them. Charles was constantly going to war against heretics. And ironically, if that's the word, he needed the money he could raise only at the right price in Antwerp which was a town entirely crammed full of every kind of heretic. Lutheran, Calvinist, Jewish, whatever. There's a wonderful pained letter to Cardinal Ranvel in Madrid. Somebody saying, yes, we have heretics. We seem to have more heretics than anybody else. We seem to have kinds of heretics I had never heard of before. So you've got this irony that you've got an emperor dependent on a city which depends on heretics that the emperor is trying to crush across his entire empire. This means the relationship is strenuous. It means that on occasions when Antwerp actually goes under siege, as in 1542, and rather nasty French surrogate armies from Gelder appear by the walls, you've got a situation where there's nobody from the empire to defend Antwerp. So Antwerp doesn't really owe the emperor anything in that sense. Except that, of course, it does owe fealty and, of course, it does go on about its loyalty and all the rest of it. And it stages wonderfully expensive feasts for the emperor and his son when they visit. Although feasts which were wonderfully expensive and which the city was remarkably unwilling to pay for. It took a very long time to raise the money. And in the end, all the bits and pieces of the feasts had to be sold off in a sort of last-minute fire sale in order to actually clear the books. It's a very complicated relationship. Antwerp could be loyal to Lutheran Germany if it wanted to be, in a way, because that's where the mines were, that's where the metals were coming from, that's where a lot of the goods were coming from. It could be loyal, if you like, to Henry VIII in England. Why not? After all, one of the things that started Antwerp's real history in the 13th century was Antwerp becoming the staple, that's to say, the main trading place for English wool in Europe. And it then had to make a pretense of being loyal to the emperor in order not to get trouble and the fact of the matter is Antwerp got away with this until the Reformation really moved within its walls which it managed to keep out for a very long time and when it does in 1556 suddenly there are a very few people on the streets but they're running and they're running from church to church and in each church they're smashing images they're destroying things they're breaking down the signs of papism i suppose And people are really panicking about this, you can tell, because householders are taking down the statues from their houses because they know those will just be an object of vandals if they leave them there. This is the moment when Antwerp suddenly has the Reformation on its streets and Madrid could not deal with it. Because to Madrid, any kind of attack on authority was an attack on the authority of Emperor, King of Spain, the Habsburgs, the whole machine of the Habsburg Empire. So all of a sudden the rather sensible governor of the Netherlands, a woman by the way, was withdrawn and the appalling Duke of Alba was sent in, a grumpy military wretch, whose only real interest in Antwerp was first killing heretics, he was very keen on that, and secondly making a great deal of money out of the Antwerp money markets which he did his fortune something like 10 times as great when he left Antwerp as it was when he moved in. Anyway, all of a sudden Antwerp had to be put down because it was a place where authority was challenged directly. And the authority that worried people most being challenged was the authority of the church.
1: And so it's this, is it, this shift in governorship over the Spanish Netherlands and the influence of the Reformation and the difference of opinion between the heretics of the Netherlands and opinions in Madrid that brings those glory days of Antwerp to such a sort of horrifying end.
2: Yes, I mean people always remember that when finally Antwerp fell back into Spanish hands completely in the 80s, the whole business of Antwerp seems to have come to a halt. One third of the population of Antwerp left many of them to Amsterdam to found the businesses and the industries that made Amsterdam such a powerful and rich city. But this had begun long before. You find painters writing letters to friends saying, I'm leaving Antwerp. It's not because I'm a criminal or because I'm a heretic. It's because I can't do business anymore. Business is becoming really difficult. If your whole business depends on information coming in and going out, if a lot of the ways to make money out of markets is arbitrage, comparing one market with another, you'd better know exactly what's happening in each market. And if all of a sudden the lines of information are blocked by war or insurrection, then you're in real trouble because that can't go on. And that's the slow process that goes on. What happens after that is Alba's oppression, a period when Antwerp becomes a Calvinist republic, completely unacceptable, the Habsburgs and finally after a long siege the Habsburgs take the town back and it's interesting that this time when Farnese the Habsburg commander comes in and there is a traditional display entering the city in a kind of triumph and he is handed the key of Antwerp but he doesn't do what everybody else did in that kind of ceremony he does not hand it back
1: Well, that is a wonderful end to what has been an incredible overview of this city that most of us have heard of and many of us have been to, but that actually what you're talking about is a lost city, the city of the early 16th century that really doesn't survive. And I would urge everyone listening to this, in fact, to pick up a copy of Antwerp the Glorious by Michael Pye, because if you've enjoyed the very tasty morsels that you've heard over the course of this podcast, you will certainly enjoy this wonderful book. Michael, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor, and not just the Tudor, love. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick, and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age,